Join us as we explore the exciting past of the grand state of Texas from the archives of the Texas Collection. Host Robert Darden talks with Texas history writers. You'll hear dramatic and often little-known Texas tales. This is Treasures of the Texas Collection. Hi, I'm Robert Darden, your host for Treasures of the Texas Collection. The star in Baylor's architectural crown, and perhaps one of the most remarkable buildings in the entire state of Texas, is the Armstrong Browning Library. This stunning Italian Renaissance-style building, with its amazing collection of stained glass windows, parquet floors, and cathedral-like rooms, is home to the world's largest collection of books, letters, manuscripts, and memorabilia pertaining to the 19th century English poets Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. The stunning building and the collections housed within, of course, represent the life work of Baylor professor Andrew Joseph Armstrong, who lived from 1873 until 1954. You know, Baylor University was little more than 60 years old when A.J. Armstrong arrived as head of the English department in 1912. He had taught at Baylor four years earlier as an interim professor for one year, but his arrival in 1912 marked the beginning of one of the greatest era in the university's history. Armstrong was a native Kentuckian, but he was no stranger to Texas as he had also previously taught at East Texas Baptist Institute in Rusk, Texas. It was there that he first met Baylor President Samuel Palmer Brooks, and the rest, as they say, is history. So with us today to share some highlights from the remarkable life of Dr. A, as he was affectionately known, is Dr. Scott Lewis. Dr. Lewis, who is editor of the Browning's Correspondence and currently serves as president of the London Browning Society, is a 1983 graduate of Baylor. And he worked at the Armstrong Browning Library all four years he was at Baylor. So I figure he knows this place pretty well by now. He is currently preparing a biography of Armstrong to commemorate the centenary of Armstrong's arrival at Baylor in 1912. Scott, welcome. Thanks, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. So to begin, perhaps you can tell us how Dr. Armstrong actually came to Baylor of all places. Well, as you mentioned, Bob, Dr. Armstrong first came to Baylor in 1908 as an interim professor. He had just received his Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania, where his dissertation was The Opera in England Before Handel. Next to literature, music and drama were his favorite subjects, but the focus of his professional career was always the poet Robert Browning. And in that first year here at Baylor, he taught a Browning course. The class numbered 115 students, wow. the largest Browning class ever taught by Armstrong. However, later that summer, he accepted the post as head of the English department at Georgetown College in Georgetown, Kentucky, where he remained until he returned to Baylor in 1912 as head of the English department. Looking back, do we know what his introduction to Browning was? Well, yes. When Dr. Armstrong was teaching at Illinois Wesleyan University in Bloomington, Indiana, his landlady, Mrs. Grace Austin, clearly saw his potential for a Browning interest. After a friendly conversation over dinner discussing the relative merits of Walter Savage Lander and Robert <laughs> Browning, she left a copy of Browning's Prospice open on his desk, and from there he never looked back. <laughs> Great story. So what was it that attracted Armstrong to Browning's poetry? 
Well, probably many things, but most of all, Armstrong found in Robert Browning's poetry a philosophy of Christian optimism that became his most effective teaching tool. It reinforced his own belief in the power of great literature, especially great poetry, not only to teach, but also to transform lives. Writing to her friend Mary Russell Mitford in 1842, Elizabeth Barrett Browning said that a religious man without literature is nobler in the sight of angels than a literary man without religion. Hmm. Armstrong was both a religious man and a literary man. For him, literature represented spirituality at its finest, in its purest form. He once said, I would be willing to render up my life tomorrow if by doing so I could produce another Dante, Shakespeare, or Browning. Hmm. These left behind them visions of spirituality that have been tremendous. Most of their philosophy of life is only the teachings of Christ in a modified form. So I hope to project my ideas through the centuries into thousands of young people yet unborn who will catch the vision and fertilize the minds of the future long after this generation has passed on. Oh, beautifully said. In your opinion, Scott, what are some of the highlights of his early days at Baylor? Well, one thing that will be of special interest to you, Bob, is that during his first year as head of the English department at Baylor, Dr. Armstrong oversaw the development of the first journalism class ever taught in Texas. Hmm. He didn't teach the course, but he was instrumental in seeing that it got off the ground. And during that first year, he began a tradition that would continue for the rest of his 40-year career at Baylor of bringing leading scholars, poets, actors, singers, and dignitaries to the Baylor campus. In the spring of 1913, Baylor was host to Dr. Lyman Kittredge of Harvard College, who lectured on Shakespeare. Of course, this was a, um, a time of, of great trouble in the world. Only a few years later, America would declare war on Germany, and the United States would officially enter World War I. A few weeks after the declaration of war in April 1917, Dr. Armstrong called on students during chapel to give 10 cents each toward the purchase of a flagpole and a flag so that Baylor could join other Texas institutions in showing its patriotism and support for the war cause. It may seem a small matter now when many suburban homes fly flags, but at that time a flagpole was an expensive proposition, eventually costing $500, mm. a princely sum in 1917. But Dr. Armstrong's influence was such that less than two months after the initial call on June 1st, 1917, the 101-foot pole had been erected and a flag-raising ceremony was held in front of the Carroll Science Building. Wow. You mentioned Dr. Armstrong brought great names to Baylor. Hey, drop some names for us, will you? Okay, well, um, I know you're interested in gospel music, Bob, particularly its influence on civil rights, so you'll find it especially noteworthy that the renowned um, African-American contralto Marian Anderson sang in Waco on the 27th of March, 1939. By this time in her career, she had achieved international acclaim, and her fees had risen from $400 to as much as $2,000 for most performances. Nevertheless, her appearance at Baylor netted Dr. Armstrong a little more than $400 profit for his Browning projects. The performance in Waco was one of several stops in Texas as she made her way back east from Oregon. And while she was here, she received a telegram informing her that two weeks later, on Easter Sunday, she was to sing in an open-air concert from the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This historic concert before an audience of more than 75,000 was organized in part by Eleanor Roosevelt, who was infuriated by the Daughters of the American mm -hmm. Revolution having refused permission for Anderson to sing in Constitution Hall. 
But the DAR weren't the only ones who objected to Anderson singing. One of Dr. Armstrong's regular patrons wrote to say that she was sorry to hear that Anderson was to appear in Waco Hall. And referring to Toscanini's comment in the promotional material that Marian Anderson's is the most glorious voice on the earth today, the good lady stated that it would have met with a visit from the Ku Klux Klan in years gone by. Oh, scary stuff even now. But that didn't deter Dr. Armstrong, or Baylor, I guess. No, Marian Anderson was only one of many exceptional women Dr. Armstrong brought to Baylor. For Baylor's Diamond Jubilee in 1920, Dr. Armstrong organized a Browning symposium that included two women poets, Harriet Monroe and Amy Lowell. However, Amy Lowell stands out most prominently, if for no other reason, simply for the stark contrast of her peculiar New England personality with the conservative Baptist atmosphere of Baylor. Then as now, Baylor maintained a very strict no-smoking spo- policy. So Amy Lowell's notorious cigar smoking could have been problematic if she had not flattered the university with her restraint. <laughs> However, Dr. Armstrong was unable to meet her rather extravagant request for an entire floor of Waco's Raleigh Hotel for her entourage. For the event, he could only secure two suites due to the scarcity of rooms in Waco during the festivities. Lowell's eccentricities even extended to excluding herself from the formal reception, during which she held court in a lawn chair across campus. As part of the celebrations, Baylor awarded Lowell an honorary doctorate, one of 56 given on the occasion. She wrote a friend a few days later, I wish you could have seen us, 58 strong, she added to, lined up on the platform of a Billy Sunday sort of tabernacle, receiving our degrees with the perspiration rolling in streams off our faces, all wound up in silk gowns, velvet hoods, and generally ruppled finery. The crazy thing is, I've read that the temperature that day in Waco hit 106 degrees. (laughs) That's right. As Lowell explained in a letter to Armstrong a few years later, it was her visit to Baylor that inspired her poem, Texas. She said, I wrote it in the train on leaving Waco. Its genesis was a motor drive which one of the kind ladies of Waco took us on. When we got far out on the prairie, in the direction of what I believe is your country club, I looked back. Waco had disappeared from view, and its one skyscraper was hull down on the horizon, with all its windows gleaming and twinkling in the sunset light. It was a day or so after Mr. Lomax had been reading us his cowboy songs, and you will recognize the cowboy refrain. Robert Frost once told Dr. Armstrong, you are indeed the friend of wandering poets. Indeed. Dr. Armstrong seems to have been ahead of his time in recognizing great talent and knowledge, regardless of gender, race, or creed. Yes, it's, it's interesting to note <clears throat> that he was asked to represent the white community of Waco at the funeral of Jules Bledsoe, the great African-American baritone of Old Man River fame. Good stuff. I know that Dr. Armstrong was able to raise funds by charging for cultural events and that he used the profits for his Browning cause. But from what I understand, he had lots and lots of other ways of making money as well. Can you tell us about some of these? Well, yes. Probably the the most important one was that um, Dr. and Mrs. Armstrong owned a travel agency, at one time the largest private agency in North America. He established this agency both to satisfy his own desire to see the world and to raise money toward his goals. President uh, Baylor President Samuel Palmer Brooks once introduced Armstrong as 
the man who makes his living directing a travel bureau so that he can afford to be a college <laughs> professor. Well, by turning their tours into Browning pilgrimages, the Armstrongs were able to bring attention to the poets as well as raise interest in and funds for their Browning collection. It is no coincidence that President Brooks made the statement he did about Dr. Armstrong directing a travel bureau. In the summer of 1930, President Brooks and his wife joined forces with the Armstrongs on the Armstrong educational tour to Europe. During their negotiations regarding the trip, there was discussion between President Brooks and Mrs. Armstrong concerning the possibility of Baylor musicians traveling with their groups and playing on board the ocean liners. Mrs. Armstrong wrote to President Brooks, offering a possible answer to the musicians playing jazz or dance music. She said, They are not in any sense to be known as a jazz orchestra. Mr. McCracken, the Baylor Orchestra conductor at the time, himself refuses to play ordinary jazz, and if they are called upon to play dance music, it will be music of a high order. <laughs> it would be foolish to pretend that they would not be called upon to play dance music, but if they do not go as an official Baylor University orchestra, but simply as a group of Baylor folks earning their way across the ocean, I am wondering if there would be any question whatever in anybody's mind. If you prefer it, we shall keep it an entirely private matter and not label it the Baylor Orchestra. President Brooks replied, I believe you have hit upon a proper plan. It will be a group of boys going on their own hook for the summer, and Baylor will, of course, waive all responsibility therefore. And I think you are wise in allowing them to go without carrying the official name of Baylor. Nevertheless, President Brooks and Mrs. Armstrong were aware of the advertising potential for Baylor, as Brooks went on to explain. It is plain, however, that the publicity given to the announcement will spread widely in the papers over the state, and Baylor's name will be inseparably connected with their going. The university will get all the gain that might come therefrom, and at the same time waive any personal responsibility <laughs> for the care and conduct of the boys. Mr. McCracken himself would go as an individual, exactly as Dr. Armstrong goes, free to do what he pleases, as any gentleman might, on a journey of that kind. Mrs. Armstrong herself, she was quite involved in all of his activities, right? Well, she was. Um, they, were, they were very much a team, um, Bob. I mean, she certainly helped a great deal with the travel agency, yeah. um, and also um, when he was acting as an agent for bringing these big names. I mean, he, in, in addition to the ones we've mentioned, he brought um, opera singers like Tetrazzini and Gallicurci, which would be the equivalent of bringing Placido Domingo here wow. today. Um, so she was very much involved in entertaining these people when they came. Um, there's a wonderful story about how um, she had had the guest room redecorated for one of the guests, and when they arrived, um, they, she was reading a biography about this person after they had arrived and found out that the color yellow was her least favorite color, so she had to go up the next morning and completely change the guest room because it was, it, she had done it all in yellow. But um, she was also very um, in, influential in, I think, acting as something of a buffer between Dr. Armstrong and both um, you know, fellow faculty members and that sort of thing and students. Um, he, was, he could be a very gruff, difficult man, and I think she was the soft side. Um, although there's some stories about her being pretty firm herself. Um, she certainly had a great hand in many of the details of the, of the Armstrong Browning Library building. Dr. Armstrong was not well toward the end of his life when the building was being built, and she had to sort of take over to an extent. And she wrote, I, I've read letters that she's written to the architect saying, you know, talking about having sleepless nights 
um, trying to work out the panels for the um, the bronze entrance doors. Um, and and I think if one looks closely at um, the building, you can see the the influence that that she had in in that way. Um, there's a wonderful portrait of her in in the building, which I think. Um, shows her as the as the great person that she was and the elegant and, and um, distinguished lady that she was and, and as his as his great helper. As you mentioned earlier, Dr. Armstrong's main focus in life was the poet Robert Browning, Scott. His own Browning collection, I hear, was fairly significant by the time he arrived at Baylor. And I know he gave his collection to university in 1918. But that still doesn't explain the building itself. Well, the collection was first housed on the open shelves in Carroll Library, where the Texas collection is now housed. There are in, in fact, there are some photographs of the collection or pieces of the collection in the Texas collection. But after the fire in 1922, a separate Browning room within the Carroll Library was created and formally opened in December of 1923. Fortunately, none of the Browning items were lost in the 1922 fire. But as the collection had grown quite large and valuable, it was obvious that a safe and more suitable space for it must be provided. In February of 1936, Dr. Armstrong wrote to, to Baylor President Pat Neff and said, my dream is a Browning library, and dreams very frequently come true. <laughs> Certainly his did. My dream is to have something as rich in its architecture, beauty, and delicacy as the famous Taj Mahal in India which is said to be the most beautiful building in the world. He went on to describe elements he envisioned and added that he hoped to get $100,000 to $150,000 for a Memorial Browning Library, which will be probably the most exquisite building in Texas. Not the showiest or largest, but when it comes to artistic beauty, I do not believe it will be equaled in Texas, and perhaps not in the United States. Pretty ambitious during the Great Depression. You can tell so, I guess, he was a firm believer in Browning's philosophy that a, quote, man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what heaven's for. So what do you think his main purpose, really, was for building the building? Well, at the laying of the cornerstone, he himself said, The thing I leave with you is that in this building, from this building, I wish to emanate, I wish to radiate a spirituality that shall reach the ends of the world, this was especially true of the foyer of meditation. His vision was that it would last for a thousand years and would eventually inspire another Dante, Shakespeare, or Browning. Wow, ambitious. Growing up at Baylor, I've always heard that the Armstrong Browning Library is kind of a, a greatest hits of world architecture. Do you know some of the inspirations for the different parts of the building? Well, um, first of all, the, the entrance door is a good place to start, um, are fashioned after the, um, the famous bronze uh, entrance doors to the baptistry of the cathedral in Florence in, in um, Italy. Um, the panels there, of course, are the, and it's called the Gates of Paradise, and, and um, are, you know, scenes and, and um, episodes from the Old and New Testament, and of course the bronze doors here are, are um, episodes from either Robert or Elizabeth uh, Browning's poetry. The... Um, the main room in the building, which was really the uh, Dr. Armstrong's great focus, the foyer of meditation, was originally inspired by a room in a house in London called Leighton House. A good friend of Browning's was Frederick Lord Leighton. Um, he was a, a president of the Royal Academy, in fact. And uh, there's a room in, in his uh, house that um, it's, it's much smaller than the foyer of meditation has ended up being, but it was the, the inspiration um, for, that, for that room. 
Um, the one in Leighton House is is very Middle Eastern, very Oriental with tiles, and there's a fountain in the floor, and it's 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 quite intimate. Um, what Dr. Armstrong ended up with the Foyer of Meditation is much more cathedral-like, mm-hmm. um, and there are many other examples, but those are a couple of the of, of the inspirations. Now, when I was pledging at Baylor, I was given the assignment to count all of the pomegranates in the place, and there must be thousands of the little goobers. What's that all about? Well, of course, the pomegranates come from the title Bells and Pomegranates, which was the title of one of Browning's um, early collections of poetry. Um, And for Browning, it symbolized um, uh, sound and music uh, with words in in poetry. And and for Dr. Armstrong, he, he he sort of extended that um, symbolism, using using those images throughout the building, and uh, and of course bells and pomegranates are are easy to look at, I suppose. How did he make his dream come true? Well, Pat Neff had long been a friend and supporter of Dr. Armstrong's enterprises, and he felt that Baylor needed to improve its physical plant in order for it to move to the next level. So in 1943, he offered Dr. Armstrong a hundred thousand dollars if Armstrong could match the amount. Dr. A did better than that, of course. In the midst of a wartime economy, he was able to raise more than double that amount. He solicited funds from everyone, including fellow faculty members. In early 1944, Monroe S. Carroll, who was chairman of the business school, sent a note with his contribution. He said, I'm making the check for $26 instead of 25, as you suggested, because it was 26 years ago last month when I first saw you crossing the Baylor campus in the spirited gate of a thoroughbred. (laughs) Because of the war, of course, construction of the building was delayed, but the groundbreaking ceremony was held on Browning's birthday, May 7th, in 1948. The cornerstone was laid on February 25th, 1950, and elaborate dedication ceremonies were held December 1st through the 3rd of 1951. At the time, total cost of the building was estimated at nearly $2 million. Mm. As construction of the building neared completion, he wrote to a major contributor, I do hope they will put on my $50 tombstone, he being dead yet speaketh. I found this same quotation Bob written out in his own hand in the way he had of scribbling notes to himself on the backs of old ticket stubs, which he would pin to his tie or his coat. In fact, the pinholes are still there. Is it true that he was shameless? And I mean shameless in his fundraising efforts? Well, absolutely. He would write people and tell them that he knew that they had already given however much, but perhaps they could give another $10 or whatever amount. Maybe, he would say, it could come out of their ties. <laughs> Imagine what their preachers must have thought. He once asked Pat Neff to return a book he had given him so he could sell it and get $10 for the Browning building. Here's a guy that's probably not above shaking down elementary kids. Absolutely not. With all that in mind, how did Dr. Armstrong relate to his fellow faculty members? Well, I, I'm sure there were, there were good and bad. One story comes to mind. Um, has to do with um, Guy B. Harrison, who was the director of the Texas Collection, since we're talking about the Texas Collection. Mm-hmm. He was also a history professor here at Baylor. Um, but at that time, the Texas Collection and the Browning Collection were side by side in the Carroll Library, and so they sort of competed for space and resources. And in Guy B. Harrison's um, oral history memoir, there, there's a wonderful passage where he talks about how Dr. Armstrong was so outrageous 
because he would send his students over to take chairs away from people in the Texas collection <laughs> and take the chairs back to the Browning collection. And in fact, Guy B. Harrison went to Pat Neff and said, you know, you've got to do something about this. And he, he, he said, anyway, that um, Pat Neff used harsh language to bring Dr. Armstrong into line. So I, I, I think there was, um, I think Dr. Armstrong sort of was a, being the very um, independent and fiery character that he was, he, he probably um, stood out a, a bit amongst his fellow faculty members. And, uh, but I, I think the, the um, comment about uh, Professor Carroll sending the money I think says that there were, some, there were some good relationships as well. Do you think that the people at the time had a sense that he was a larger-than-life figure even then? Oh, absolutely. No, there's no question about it. And, and that comes through from uh, you know, memoirs that I've, I've seen as well as people I've talked to. No, the, he, he, and it wasn't just at Baylor. I mean, he had an influence beyond Baylor. Um, he was well-known um, internationally as, as a Browning person. Um, certainly people in England, they'd heard of Baylor because of, because of Armstrong and his, his Browning um, uh, endeavors. Uh, I was doing some research some years ago at Rutgers Uni University in New Jersey um, for the Browning's Correspondence Project, and I turned a page, and there were several letters from Dr. Armstrong to the then librarian of, of Rutgers asking about Browning things there. So his influence extended far, um, you know, far beyond here. But ultimately, I guess, it's as a teacher, and, and particularly a Browning that he is still remembered. Do you think that's his greatest legacy? Well, I think he would certainly want it to be. From the time he was a boy, he wanted to be a teacher. His mother once found um, written on a blackboard she'd given him when he was seven, Joe Armstrong, professor of Latin and Greek. And years later, he jokingly recalled, I don't think I even knew what a professor was, and I certainly didn't know what Greek was. <laughs> all that said, and all of his many former students who, who give tribute to him to now, Aren't there just as many stories about how difficult he was as a teacher? Oh, absolutely. Too many to count. And they're <laughs> usually the first ones that are told. He once wrote a friend, I am so frank, and it is so often misunderstood. <laughs> <laughs> That's an understatement, I think. But he was known to give very um, frequently to give neg negative <laughs> grades. And there's little doubt that he favored certain students over others to the point of hurting feelings at times. I recently met a 94-year-old lady who was a student of his in the 1930s. She said she once received a grade of minus 25. <laughs> that wasn't the worst of it. Across the top of the paper, he had written, not worthy. And she had worked very hard on that paper. But she said, if you didn't get a negative grade, you knew he didn't think much of your potential. And I think this aspect of his personality is summed up perfectly by the late Ann Miller in some lines for her, from her poem on his portrait. The face we see there has the same gruff, craggy grace that bruised and beguiled us all at once, the eyes that shot commands, or even scorn at times, come back to tenderness, the lips to laughter breaking out. So take a minute and think about this. What do you think he would want the final word about himself to be? Well, I think the Browning quotation he chose to place above the entrance of the Armstrong Browning Library says it best for me. Would you have your songs endure, build on the human heart? But of course, he would probably prefer the epitaph he wanted for his $50 tombstone, he being dead, yet speaketh. Scott, thank you. You're very welcome, Bob. It's been a great pleasure to be here and talk about Dr. Armstrong. 
These have been some great stories about a remarkable man. The Texas Collection at Baylor University has one of the largest collections of Texana in the whole world. Rare books, diaries, newspapers, photographs, maps, and of course, lots of information on Dr. A.J. Armstrong, his own self. For more information, go to baylor.edu slash lib, L-I-B, slash Texas. And I'm Robert Darden, Associate Professor of Journalism, PR, and New Media at Baylor University. And I hope you'll join us again next time on Treasures of the Texas Collection. Treasures of the Texas Collection is made possible by generous grants from the Wardlaw Fellowship Fund for Texas Studies and by the Guy B. Harrison Jr. Endowment Fund. This has been a production of KWBU-FM 103.3 Public Radio for Central Texas.